Okay. Well, good morning, and welcome to Genesis 2 in 20 minutes. <laughs> Before I begin, let me just say that I hope you all uh, will listen to Jen's talk on the chapter because I don't want to repeat everything she has already skillfully said. And I hope to just highlight some of what God has given us here that has been particularly meaningful to me. In Genesis 1, we were given the account of God's creation of everything in the heavens and on earth, and we learned that before creation, God was there, in the beginning God. They were there, Father, Son, and Spirit in relationship. Prior to the material universe, whether as mass or just energy, love and communication between the three were there. And when God created, we are told he blessed all the creatures and pronounced everything he created good. The Hebrew word tov is translated as good throughout the Old Testament, and it expresses dynamic fullness. It always denotes a gift from God. The word tov also embraces the aesthetic notion of beauty, and it's the word we translate as pleasing, as in pleasing to the eye. Our triune God also created man in their likeness to have communion, to exercise, to have dominion, to exercise skilled mastery over all that God created, and to remember that every single creature, man and beast, has been blessed by our eternal, sovereign, omnipotent God. After creating, we are told God rested, that he ceased from his work, and declared that day the seventh day holy. So we know God did not get tired, but he knew we would, so he set that day apart as a holy day of worship and rest, as Carmen so beautifully put it last time. And I take from that that since we actually live and enjoy his finished creation work during our lifetime here, all our time here is holy time. We know God is infinite and outside of time. But here and now, we are gifted with lives to be lived out thankfully and reverently in this his holy space and time, until that day when we will enjoy timeless eternity with him because of our Savior, Jesus Christ. So now in Genesis 2, we are given an account or a record. That Hebrew word pronounced toldot is a word that occurs at the beginning of each main section in Genesis, and here it is where we find described the beginning of human history and its geographical setting. We are giving a, given a window into mankind's beginning and the environment in which he was placed. The Lord first informs us that he had not yet sent rain to the earth but that streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface. These are living waters that watered the Garden of Eden and maintained the physical life of all the trees and vegetation that grew there and all the creatures that lived there. One of the derivations for the name Eden is from an Aramaic word meaning fruitful and well-watered. So picturing these bubbling up waters reminds me of a recent discovery made by Israeli divers who were able to reach the floor of the Dead Sea for the first time in history. Some of you already know my preoccupation with that. 
There they found deep freshwater springs bubbling up from the floor of that highly saline sea, too salty for most living creatures, bringing to our attention with them new heretofore unknown microorganisms. And I love that picture because I see it as a sneak preview of Ezekiel's prophetic vision in 47, one through nine, where he saw that everything will live at the end of history when the salt water of the Dead Sea becomes fresh and life-giving. So here in Genesis 2, we are told that in Eden, these deep-in-the-earth waters of life produced a river that was separated into four headwaters, one of which flowed through Havilah, an area of land where gold, bdellium, and onyx are found. So now I'm afraid as a gemologist, I just must pause here briefly, <laughs> as everyone knew I would. And here we are introduced to the fact that metals and minerals are also part of God's creation. We're even told in Ezekiel 28 that fiery stones were in the Garden of Eden, even before God walked with man. And here they are all pronounced good. The three items mentioned would have been recognizable to the original hearers. Gold was used in the tabernacle in the wilderness. God chose pure gold for the Holy of Holies and all its furnishings. And gold and pure gold overlay were chosen for its antechamber, the holy place. Gold was interwoven into the garments of the high priest and those of the other priests that served the sanctuary. So God provided gold from the beginning to be used in worship and as another way to declare his glory. Bedellium is a type of gum resin that was used as incense. It is similar to myrrh, which is a core ingredient in the sacred anointing oil of God's priests and in the articles used in worship. We learn in Numbers 11.7 that bedellium's color resembles that of manna. So maybe you can picture the color of amber that you've probably seen, another tree resin. Onyx is a commonly banded variety of chalcedony, a microcrystalline form of quartz. It is the accepted gem in most translations for the 11th stone of the high priest's breastplate for the tribe of Joseph. And it is also the word for the two stones fastened on the shoulder pieces of the high priest's ephod on which the names of the sons of Israel were engraved. So the gemstone onyx appeared on the high priest whenever he came before the Lord. All of these substances were well known. No one seems exactly sure where the land of Havilah was, but, main, but many believe Eden lay in southern Mesopotamia, where Iraq and Kuwait are located today. But there's a lot of discussion about that. However, most important to me as a Christian who has been studying gemstones for, I have to say, over 50 years now, that I've always heard sermons in them. All science, including gemology, as I once heard someone say, polishes the gift of seeing. I have found that to be true because the pattern and beauty of minerals offers a wonderful insight into the mind and heart of God. Shakespeare wrote in his play, As You Like It, that there are tongues in trees, books in the running brooks, and sermons in stones. And I find in them all just another way in which God pours forth speech, as David writes in Psalm 19, in order to grant wisdom and to, to declare his glory.
As for trees, in the garden itself, we are told God planted trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. He also planted in the center of the garden two especially important trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it is in this garden that God placed man, Adam, probably taken from the Hebrew word Adama, meaning earth. And in him, God breathed the breath of life. God had breathed life into all his creatures, but in this account with the man that he had also formed from the dust of the earth, we are given an account that is especially warm and personal. It's a very intimate picture of the Lord God coming so close that he could breathe into Adam's nostrils his own breath in order to make man a living being. It is face-to-face -face contact between God and Adam, and it's a su supreme example of self-giving from our God. We may remember how in John 20, Jesus breathed the Holy Spirit upon his disciples. There's not really more intimate action than this between God and man. It is a reminder that we serve a very personal and loving God. Job declares in 33:4, the spirit of the Lord has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. This is something for us always to remember. God is so much nearer to us than we usually think, as near as every breath we take. This life-giving breath is, as we know, man's affinity with all the animals because they and man are made of common chemicals. But the important difference is that mankind is made in God's image and so has been divinely appointed to be God's steward over the other creatures and the rest of creation. He is to share in God's rule or administration of the earth's resources and to exercise loving dominion over God's creatures. So how do you think we're doing? <laughs> I would suggest we have witnesses. The water itself and all that live in it is a witness. The land and every creature and person who roams it is a witness. And every tree and plant that grows upon it is a witness. Also those stones that are capable of shouting out. Sadly, in Romans 8, we find creation groaning. Those trees, brooks, and stones that Shakespeare mentioned are giving out lots of sermons. So are we listening? So what about the one man, Adam, whom the Lord first created? The man who was needed to work the ground. The Lord said it is not good for the man to be alone. And we know God is not alone. He is described as an us and a we. And God has been seen from the beginning as relational. And the first man was seen as incomplete, as a single entity. It was, for the first time, something that God declared not good. God knew Adam was made for fellowship, and God was sensitive to Adam's loneliness and his incompleteness. No other creature that God had so far made and to whom he told Adam to name was a suitable helper for him. There needed to be someone who would be complementary to and essential for, but somehow different from him. So God took Eve from the flesh of Adam. Eve became the very stuff of Adam. And the man we now know, and the man 
we know the woman, the man and the woman together, male and female, he created, because what became what we know as mankind. Through Adam and Eve, though Adam and Eve were individual beings who were valued for themselves alone, the two united were to become one flesh, as in many ways they already were. In Matthew and Mark, Jesus unites these two accounts of one flesh found in Genesis 1.27 and 2.24 and presents them as marriage. And at that point, there was no mention of childbearing. Chapter 2 ends with, they were naked and felt no shame. That means in the, at that time, in their moral innocence, Adam and Eve enjoyed freedom from any kind of disjointedness, humiliation, or distress. But I want to go back to Adam in the Garden of Eden, a garden that was called a paradise where everything was laid on. There was nourishment there, their beauty, appealing work to which Adam could apply his body and mind. And there were even places beyond to explore, a whole world out there where there were things to mine, those treasures of darkness where the living water rivers flowed. The tree of life was in the garden. This tree appears in Revelation 2.7 as well, where it is the tree that signifies perfect fellowship with God. But Adam was also shown another tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Of this one he was commanded not to eat. And it was the only restriction given to Adam in that paradisal garden the only one given to God's made-in-his-image moral, spiritual, and intellectual steward of his creation, creature, man. God knew man's freedom in the garden needed to be conditional. And why? Because of just that. Man is a creature. He is not God. And he was made a responsible creature, which means he is responsible to the one who created him, someone other than himself. After God made woman out of man, he had work for them to do. And he placed a moral restriction on them, both because they were image-bearing, life-breathing creatures and not machines. God made it clear to Adam that if he disobeyed this one command, he would die. And I wonder if Adam understood what that meant. Probably not exactly. But here's the thing. Have we noticed that all the rest of creation responded when God spoke them into being with his word? He spoke and they became. And then they followed whatever boundaries of creation God had set for them. The planets rotated around the sun, the trees bore the fruit of their kind, the birds flew in the air, etc. God spoke differently and additionally to Adam. God went on to instruct Adam in language, a language that he could understand. Some refer to it as the Adamic language or divine language. And we don't exactly know what that language sounded like, but God conversed with Adam in it and Adam understood it. God taught Adam to give names to the other created things, which means Adam classified them. He adequately described them taxonomically. Adam also classified Eve originally by calling her woman as he is called man, but later in chapter 3 we'll see that Adam gave her the personal name of Eve. 
God also told Adam what he could do and should not do. So Adam had a capable mind. It is the conceptual qualities of Adam's mind which enabled him to use language and which gave him ideas of space and time and all things he would have known nothing about if God had not revealed them to him. So among other things, Genesis is a book about revelation, revelation about God and about ourselves, who he is and who we are. It's a revelation with a purpose. Man is made in God's image, and he's been made an intelligent being with a capacity for communion with the eternal God, something that God seems to desire, not need, but desire. And man has heard God speak, can see what God has spoken into being, so man is able to understand. He does get it, if he wants to. The rub is... Our first human parents did not really want to, and often we don't either. I heard the poet philosopher David White make an interesting comment on a podcast once when he said, we're the only part of creation that can refuse to be ourselves. The tree is the tree, the mountain is the mountain, the hawk is the hawk. In other words, we are the only ones who can refuse to be who we were created to be and do the work we were created to do. So what we are told that transpires next in the garden is strictly a moral issue. But at the end of this chapter, chapter two, mankind is still in complete harmony with each other, with creation, and with God. I would just like to close with a partial quote from Mark Buchanan's book, The Holy Wild, Trusting in the Character of God, that my friend, Sherry Larson, who some of you might know, sent me recently about how much of God's creativity is hidden. Mark writes, much of what God makes he tucks away in microscopic minuteness or cosmic immensity. Deep beneath or far above us, he saves his most intricate work for the insides and undersides of things. I'm not exactly sure what all Mark meant by the insides and undersides of things, but for me, I think it can apply to his creation of us and the intricate working of the male and female, man and woman, who are made in God's image, and what we make of that. We are complex. The ongoing question for me is how can we, sons and daughters, mothers and fathers, with each other, and together in our lives today in this dissonant world, project even with all its complexity that harmony with which, with which we've been created. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for all of your good creation and for the great gift that you've bestowed on us by appointing us to be stewards over it. We bless you that you've created us in your image. Open our eyes, ears, and hearts to know how we might better love and bless one another and all your creatures so that harmony will always triumph over chaos in every field of endeavor. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, without whom we know this is not possible. We ask in your son's name. Amen.